0: The Lord Jesus Christ was a master teacher, to say the least. He was able to teach like no other. In John 7 46, we have a record of a group of people saying of the Lord Jesus, No one ever spoke the way this man does. No one ever spoke the way this man does. He could teach truth in a straightforward manner. He could teach truth by using metaphors. He could teach truth by using parables. And he could teach truth by using object lessons from life. One of his most powerful object lessons is recorded in John chapter 13. And I want us to turn there by way of introduction this morning. So, the fourth book of the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. John chapter 13 is where we'll begin before we go to our text over in 1 John, near the end of the New Testament. John chapter 13. This is our Lord's final night with His disciples before His crucifixion. Therefore, He wanted to leave them with some very important and very key truths. Some of these truths He relayed to them in a direct or straightforward manner. He just told them outright However, one of the lessons he relayed to them was found in the form of a powerful object lesson. We pick up the story in verse 3. John tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. John prefaces this familiar story with his comments in verse 3 so that maybe we'll catch a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus and we'll realize just how magnanimous this act of Jesus really was. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus had all things in his hands when he reached out to take the feet of his disciples into his hands to wash their feet. Now if we really want to appreciate this story, we must get rid of the false concepts that are in our minds from all the paintings we have seen of the Last Supper. Contrary to popular artistic renderings, Jesus did not eat at a huge oak table with all of his disciples sitting on the same side with him. As they ate this meal, they were actually reclining. They were reclining on the floor with a very little table in front of them containing the food. A table of approximately 18 inches in height. So they're reclining on the floor, reclining around this table, all gathered around it. That is why it was possible for John to lean up against the chest of Jesus. And that is why Peter motioned for John to ask Jesus who would betray him. So they were all reclining at the meal with dirty feet sticking in each other's faces. Therefore, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them a graphic lesson. Notice that Jesus did not announce what he was going to do. He didn't say, Now, men, I'm about to demonstrate humility. Humility is unannounced. So Jesus simply rises from supper... Lays aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Think of this. Jesus even washed the feet of Judas, the betrayer. You wonder what was going through the hard heart of Judas while Jesus was washing his feet. Jesus also washed Peter's feet, even though he knew Peter would deny him repeatedly before this night was over. To have your feet washed was a common need in Palestine during this time. The roads were dusty and people wore sandals. So naturally their feet were very dirty. It is a hot climate in the Middle East. You sweat. Your feet get sweaty. You have sandals, dirt on the the, uh, roads, and so your feet collect the dirt. The dirt sticks to your sweaty feet. So naturally their feet were very dirty. It was the duty of a slave to wash people's feet. Not even the disciples of the rabbis were to wash their rabbis' feet. It was exclusively the duty of a slave. Since there was no servant around on this night, one of the disciples should have done this. But instead of thinking of one another's need, Luke twenty-two twenty-four 24 tells us that they were actually sitting around arguing over who was the greatest. The disciples were fighting for a throne, but not for a towel. As I read this story again in preparation for this message, a thought hit me. Just think of the angels looking down and seeing the Lord of glory washing the feet of selfish, sinful men. Can you imagine the thoughts that would flood their thinking? Verse 6 tells us, Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, Are you washing my feet? The word you is emphatic in the original Greek text. Are you washing my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. As I've said in the past... Peter was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. He was always sticking his foot in his mouth. Here he uses a double negative in the Greek text to emphasize his point. He said basically this, Never, no way, not a chance. This is not going to happen. And Jesus said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. One thing you can say about Peter, and that is, he loved Jesus so much that he couldn't bear the thought of being separated from Jesus. When Jesus rebukes him for refusing to allow him to wash his feet, Peter asks for a bath. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Of course, a reference to Judas Iscariot, who was not clean, whose heart was not washed. Jesus communicates an important spiritual lesson here. What he is saying here in verse 10 is this. At conversion, at salvation, God cleanses us completely of our sins. But as we walk through the streets of this world, we pick up some of the world's dirt. As we walk through life, we get our feet dirty. So we need to have our feet washed from time to time, spiritually speaking. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, and Titus 3, 5, both make it clear that we are completely and thoroughly washed or bathed at conversion or salvation. But as we walk through the streets of this world, we pick up some of the world's dirt. As we walk through life, we get our feet dirty, so we need to have our feet washed from time to time. That is the spiritual lesson that Jesus was teaching on this occasion. He is saying this, after we have been washed completely at salvation, completely bathed, we, we don't need to get another bath, we don't need to ever be resaved, but we do need to be cleaned up when we get dirty. Now remember, there was another man present on this occasion. Not only was Peter here, so was the beloved Apostle John. He heard this interaction that Jesus had with Peter. And John never forgot it. In fact, over 50 years later, he would write a letter to teach some of these very same spiritual lessons. The letter is called First John. Let's turn to it together over near the end of the New Testament. It's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and then go backwards a little bit. First John chapter 1. Please follow along as I read this brief chapter. We've already considered the first half a dozen verses in some detail, but I'll read these for us to have the context of the verses we're going to consider this morning. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Most scholars believe that John was in his 70s or maybe even in his 80s when he wrote this letter. Keep in mind that Jesus called him to be a disciple when he was probably in his 20s, maybe even late teens. As far as we know, he was the only one of the disciples who did not die a martyr's death. He was persecuted for his commitment to the Word of God. Historical tradition tells us that on one occasion, he was placed in a large pot of boiling oil, placed in there to be boiled to death, pulled out, and then banished to the Isle of Patmos, but he didn't die. In fact, it was probably on that occasion when he received what we know as the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. So he was persecuted for his commitment to the Word of God, but he did not, as far as we could tell, die a martyr's death. From the best we can tell, he eventually died of old age. He lived a long life serving the Lord and shepherding God's people. Late in his life, he wrote this letter. After years and years of working with people, he wrote this invaluable letter filled with instruction, insight, encouragement, and exhortation. He tells us in verses 3 and 4, he wrote this letter so that he and his readers could enjoy fellowship together and fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition, he wrote so they could all be filled with fullness of joy. In light of that, it's interesting that the final verses of this first chapter deal almost exclusively with sin. You know what that tells us? It tells us this. If we are going to experience fellowship with the Father and the Son, and if we are going to be filled with fullness of joy, then we are going to have to deal with sin in our lives. Sin is a barrier to fellowship and sin is a barrier and rob, or barrier to our joy, a robber of our joy. Therefore, John had to bring up and address the issue of sin here at the end of chapter 1. An improper understanding of sin or an improper perspective on sin will steal our joy as quickly as anything. Now we might be inclined to think that sin is such a distasteful subject to think about that we ought to ignore it. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. It is imperative, absolutely imperative that we have a proper understanding of sin so that we face it and deal with it in a Christ-honoring way. That is what John addresses here in these verses. If we deal with sin The wrong way, such as ignoring it or minimizing it or denying it, we forfeit fellowship with the Father, we forfeit fellowship with the Son, and we forfeit fullness of joy. As I was preparing this message, it just so happened in the providence of God's timing that I was made aware of a situation involving a lady who used to be a part of our church a number of years back. Years ago, when she was a part of our church, she was planning on divorcing her husband, even though she had no biblical grounds. I reached out to her when I heard about this, and I appealed to her not to sin against the Lord in that way. And I told her that if she didn't deal with her own heart issues, she would just take her problems with her wherever she went, into the next relationship, into wherever she would go, she would take her own problems with her. Well, sadly, that's exactly what she did. She left our church to go to a church where nothing would be said about her actions, that her actions would be fully accepted. Unfortunately, it's not difficult to find that kind of church in our day and age. And as I was preparing this message, it came to my attention that since that time, she remarried, and now she's in a mess in her present marriage and is trying to divorce her present husband. You see, her refusal to deal with the sin issues in her own heart has resulted in more problems. Sort of a domino effect. It just continues. Amazingly, but not surprisingly, when she recently bumped into a lady from our church who was struggling through some issues, she told this lady that she ought to leave our church and come to her church where she would not have to deal with her heart issues. Beloved, that's the wrong way to deal with the sinfulness in our hearts. That's the wrong way to deal with the sinfulness in our lives. Ignoring it, denying it, running from it, results in disastrous consequences in our Christian lives. So we need to make sure that we really understand what the Holy Spirit of God says here through the pen of the Apostle John. What does the Holy Spirit of God have to say about sin here in the second half of this first chapter? By way of re- just review, and remember in verses 6 and 7, John warned about the potential we have, even as children of light, to be making sinful choices, but we give the impression to others that we are doing just fine. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The obvious assumption of those two verses of Scripture is that it is possible for us as children of light to engage in unfruitful works of darkness. The Christian who believes otherwise is deceiving himself. If you think that because you are a Christian, that automatically guarantees that you will always live like you're supposed to live, then you haven't read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with exhortations to us to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, which clearly means that it is possible for us to do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, it's bad enough when we do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. But it's even worse when we do that and we claim that everything is right between us and and the Lord. That's what John addressed in verse 6. John knew, as does every perceptive pastor, that Christians sometimes feign spirituality while engaging in acts of disobedience. When we are not making choices, or, or when we are making choices that are not pleasing to the lord we have the tendency to practice self-denial to convince ourselves and to convince others that we are doing just fine spiritually john's wording is even stronger here in this verse because he says we are lying when we are not walking as children of light to use the words of ephesians 5 8 or when we are involved in unfruitful works of darkness to use the words of Ephesians five eleven. then we are not walking in fellowship with God we are not in harmony with God to claim otherwise is to lie says the Holy Spirit through John we're not doing okay spiritually we're not practicing the truth truth is not merely what we say it's what we do it's how we live When we claim we are walking in fellowship with God, when we claim we're fine with God, we're in harmony with God, but we are making choices consistent with the darkness, John says we are lying. Maybe we want our Christian friends to think we are more spiritual than we really are. So we make the claim or give the impression that we are walking in fellowship with God. I have seen this so many times through the years. I've seen Christians who are unquestionably making wrong choices in their lives, wrong choices in their marriage, wrong choices throughout uh, all of the endeavors of life, but they give the impression they're doing fine and walking in fellowship with God. John says they are telling lies. They're lying to others. They're lying to themselves. That's the wrong way to deal with our sin. But watch this. That's not the only wrong way to deal with our sin. John adds another if-we-say statement in verse 8. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Not only is it possible for us to engage in self-denial in relation to our sin, as stated in verse 6, it is possible for us to go even further in our self-denial... To claim that we don't even have a struggle with sin. Verse 6 is a reference to sinful choices or sinful actions. And this verse is referring to our sin nature or sinful disposition. So read verse 8 that way. If we claim that we no longer struggle with sin or that we no longer have any bent towards sin, or no longer have any inclination to sin, we are engaging in extreme self-deception. Now maybe you think that John is merely being hypothetical at this point, but the fact is that there have been Christians and Christian groups down through the centuries that have claimed it is possible to get to the point of perfection so that there is no struggle with sin. Some have even claimed they have attained that status. And some teach this as a doctrine known as Christian perfectionism. Of course, to really believe such a doctrine, you have to practice extreme self-deception. You have to deceive yourself into believing that your thoughts and your attitudes are never displeasing to the Lord. You have to deceive yourself into being blind to the sinfulness of your thoughts and attitudes, not to mention your words, your actions, and your reactions. But there are Christians who have and who do end up talking themselves into believing this very perspective, which is why John wrote these words. It is shocking self-deception to get to this point. Especially when you remember that the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 12 and 13, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. That was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul said that after he had been passionately pursuing Christ's likeness for over 30 years. And he says, I haven't already attained. I'm not there. Paul, maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived, knew that he wasn't without sin. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he said, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He didn't say, of whom I was chief or used to be chief. He said, of whom I am chief. Paul did not practice self-deception. He knew he would never achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. He knew that. In Romans 7, 18, he said, For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we long for Jesus to come back and to to give us glorified bodies. Once that happens, beloved, we will never sin again. We will never battle sin again, and we will never grieve our Lord again with sinful words or actions or thoughts or attitudes or reactions. That's why Philippians 3.20 says, We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. We are are eager for Jesus to come to get us because for one thing, our bodies will be transformed and we will never have to wrestle with sin again. But until that day, until that day, we better not deceive ourselves into believing that we have no sin, as verse 8 says. If we do convince ourselves of that erroneous perspective, we deceive ourselves on a very serious point, which is why John says the truth is not in us. He's not suggesting that we have no truth in us whatsoever, but on this very serious point, we do not have the truth. We are wrong, dead wrong. If we say we have no sin, if we claim we have no sin, no battle with sin, no struggle with sin, no tendency towards sin, And this seriously wrong perspective of sin has ramifications because it's imperative that we recognize that we are sinners so that we can enjoy the privilege of getting our feet washed by the Lord, spiritually speaking. And that is why John adds verse 9. Here's the contrast. If we confess our sins... That is, in contrast to those who would claim, I don't have sin, I don't struggle with sin, I have no problem with sin. In contrast to that, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful to forgive because He has promised to do so, and He is just because His Son died for our sins. That is our confidence. Again, let me remind you, John is not, keep this clear in your mind or it will be very confu- a very confusing passage. John is not talking about positional forgiveness or cleansing in this verse. He's talking about relational forgiveness, fellowship kind of forgiveness. At the moment of salvation, we were forgiven and cleansed of all our sin positionally. But this is talking about the relational forgiveness that we experience in our walk with the Lord. Let me illustrate this concept with an example of marriage. It's one to which we can all relate. When Bev and I got married, we entered into a love relationship that is a permanent commitment, unending. That was once and for all. However, there are times when we sin against one another or hurt one another or disappoint one another. When that happens, it doesn't end the marriage or break apart the relationship. It's not like, well, you know, I uh, hurt my wife, so we need to go get remarried. That's not how it works. We still love each other deeply and are just as committed to each other. However, those unresolved hurts put a barrier in the relationship. And that's why it's important that we acknowledge our wrongs to be restored in our relationship to each other. Well, that's the same way it works in our relationship with the Lord. When we received Christ as our own Lord and Savior, when we place faith in Jesus Christ and God saved us, that brought us into a love relationship that is permanent. It's unending. All of our sins were forgiven and cleansed positionally at that very moment. But as we go along in our walk with the Lord, we sin and we displease Him from time to time. However, that doesn't end the relationship. God doesn't kick us out of His family and say, "You know what? If you want back in my family, you got to get resaved. You got to, you know, get a, another bath." Going back to the analogy of John thirteen, no, God doesn't kick us out of His family, but our sins put a barrier in the relationship, in the fellowship. That's why, as verse 9 says, we confess our sins, and that's why the Lord cleanses us. It's not so we can get re saved, rebathed, re redeemed, but rather to restore the breach in the relationship. That is exactly what Jesus taught Peter and the other disciples when he gave them that powerful object lesson in washing their feet. So, what John is saying here in verse 9 is this, or in verses 8 and 9 if you combine them together, rather than deny our sin, rather than make the claim we have no sin, rather than say we don't struggle with sin, we ought to be those who confess and acknowledge our sins. But let me hasten to add another thought. Because through the years in interacting with Christians, I've seen some who've really gotten tied up in knots over this issue. So, listen closely. John is not teaching here, that unless we are aware of every sin that needs to be confessed, we are hopelessly out of fellowship with the Lord. No, that's not the idea at all. Granted, we ought to confess our sins specifically when we are aware of them. We don't just wait till the end of the week and say, Lord, whatever I did wrong this last week, uh, you know, forgive me for that. That's not the way to have a relationship with the Lord. When we say something we shouldn't say, when we do something we shouldn't do, when we react in a way we should not react, we should take that to the Lord, specifically and immediately. However, we don't always recognize when we do sin. Our consciences aren't always as sensitive as they ought to be, and our hearts aren't always as sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we ought to be. So there are times when we, when we would sin in thought, or in attitude, or in word, or in deed, but we don't even recognize it. We're, we're unaware of it. That does not mean that we are hopelessly condemned to being out of fellowship with the Lord. John's point in this verse, here in verse 9, is that if we make it a practice to confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but don't stop there. Notice what he adds, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the unrighteousness that we may recognize. Because as I say, there there is unrighteousness in our lives at times that we don't even recognize. So John adds that last phrase here in verse 9 to assure us that the Lord cleanses us from all unrighteousness, not only the things that we see as sin and we recognize as sin, and things that we confess as sin. You could say it this way. John is exhorting an attitude here in verse 9 as much as he is an action. He is exhorting us to have an attitude of humility and acknowledgement in relation to our sin as seen in the fact that we are the ones who confess our sins when we recognize them. We are those who, unlike verse 8, we do not deny our sin. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. That is the proper attitude toward our sin. That is the proper way to deal with our sin. But then John closes the chapter with another example of the wrong attitude or approach towards sin. This is his third, if we say in a wrong manner. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This claim goes even further than the one in verse 6 and the one in verse 8. Verse 8 confronts the claim that we no longer have a sin nature or we no longer sin, but this claim is that we have not sinned. Past tense. We've not sinned. In some ways, it is difficult to imagine that someone would have the audacity to make the claim that he or she has never sinned. But this isn't merely theoretical. Let me explain. There are people in society who really don't like to be referred to as sinners. Because they don't see themselves as sinners. Or individually, they don't see themselves as a sinner. Because they have tried to be moral, because they have tried to be upstanding in the community, because they have tried to live a good life, they think that the term sinner should only be applied to people who are murderers and rapists and drunkards and drug addicts or fill in the blank, but not to them. In essence, they are saying they have not sinned. Sure, they would say they've made some mistakes in life and, you know, they've taken some missteps, and so forth, but they are not willing to accept the fact that they are, as God says, sinners. They don't want to believe they have sinned because that sounds so dirty. That sounds so vile. I don't want to be put in that camp or that category. I don't want to be called a sinner. So they basically do what John says here. They may not use these exact words, but they say they have not sinned. This is the most extreme of the three if we say claims that John addresses here at the end of this first chapter. If we say we are walking in the light when we are really making sinful decisions and choices, we are lying. That's verse 6. If we say we have no sin, that is, no problem with sin, no struggle with sin, no temptation to sin, we are deceiving ourselves. That's verse 8. But if we say we have not sinned, we make God and the Lord Jesus liars. That's verse 10. And that's the most serious of all. When you say that God is a liar or that Jesus is a liar, that is blasphemous. The first two claims are serious. Verse 6 If we say we have fellowship with him and are walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's serious. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, no struggle with sin, no sin nature, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us, that's serious. But this one is blasphemous. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar because God has repeatedly said throughout His Word that we are sinners. Romans 3, 23 says, for all have sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22 says, "...but the Scripture has confined all under sin." Psalm fourteen three says, They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Romans eleven thirty two 32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The only way, then, we will ever receive God's grace and mercy is to see and admit and acknowledge and accept the fact that we are sinners. This was a problem Jesus faced in his ministry. He knew people oh, he knew people so well. He knew there were people in society who would recoil at the idea that they were sinners. And so he made a very insightful, somewhat sarcastic statement. Statement in Matthew 9 12, when he said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, in the context, it's obvious that Jesus was saying, You know what? This group of people who were claiming that they had no problems would never be healed of their problems because they won't recognize them. In other words, those who do not recognize their need won't do anything about their need. If you think you're okay, if you think you're fine spiritually, you won't do anything about your spiritual problem. And beloved, you and I have a spiritual problem, whether we see it, recognize it, or not. We are all sinners. We have all sinned. If we claim otherwise, verse 10 says, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. That is saying, you can't even be a Christian. If you don't recognize that you are a sinner who needs the mercy and grace of God. No matter what someone claims, no matter matter how religious an individual is, no matter what he or she says, if he says he has not sinned and is not a sinner, then this verse says that person is not a child of God. Do you see why I said at the beginning of this message that it is crucial absolutely essential that we have a proper view of sin a proper understanding of sin and that we deal with sin in a proper way do you see why it is important that we deal with our sin in the way that god would have us deal with our sin if we do not we sacrifice fellowship with the lord we forfeit fullness of joy And in the case of this last scenario, we can end up away from the mercy and grace of God for all eternity. Sin is our problem. It must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with in the way that God says it must be dealt with. So I ask you this morning, do you recognize and acknowledge and admit that you are a sinner who needs the grace and mercy of God? Have you personally received the grace and mercy of God? The starting point for everything is to see that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath and deserve His judgment. And when we begin there in our understanding, that ought to drive us to the only solution for our sin, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and His mercy. So if you are here today outside of His mercy, You need to acknowledge your sin and call on him for forgiveness and grace. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes here at the end in the few minutes that remain, I encourage you to think about what you have seen that God has said in his word. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, no problem with sin, no struggle, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All three of those are wrong ways to deal with sin. But there is a right way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we come into the family of God, by humbling ourselves before him and acknowledging, confessing that we are sinners who need his forgiveness and his salvation. And that's the way we continue in our relationship with the Lord, continuing to acknowledge that we are sinners who get our feet dirty as we walk through life. We need to have our feet washed by our precious Savior. So as you think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning, I urge you to respond. Wherever you're at in life, maybe you don't really know the Lord and you need to call on Him to come to know Him today, or maybe you do, but you've not made it a practice of acknowledging, confessing sin. However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, I urge you to respond. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the insight it gives us, for the truth it relays to us, for the understanding it grants us to know how to first and foremost come into your family and be right with you, but then how to continue in a right relationship with you. As we have seen these very practical words from 1 John chapter 1, may your spirit grant us clear understanding so that we would see how we need to deal with sin we confess our natural tendency is to ignore it deny it run from it whatever the case may be that just compounds our problems we need to face it embrace the truth the reality of it and respond in the way that you want us to may each and every person gathered here this morning do that before leaving this place We pray these things together in the precious, priceless, wonderful name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.